Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along I'm pleased to welcome Greg Artsner of Magpie to Spirit in Action today. Magpie produces music that calls people to deeper connection to the earth and a life of activism and healing on a range of issues. Peace, justice, equality, racism, and especially something that is often called environmentalism. Greg and Terry of Magpie use their music to rouse the masses, benefit worthy causes, and delight discerning listeners. But they also do a lot of work in schools planting fertile seeds in young minds to help steer us to a better future. Greg Artsner of Magpie joins us today from his home in upstate New York. Greg, welcome to Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. Tell me again, what's the small town area where you guys live? Terry and I, we live in upstate New York, just outside of a little town called Middleburg in the northern Catskills, actually north of the boundary of the Catskill Park. You're from Ohio originally. You lived in Washington, D.C. Do you like the country versus living in Washington, D.C.? Do you miss the big town? Not really. We don't miss the city at all. I guess occasionally we might say that we miss our friends down there. We miss a few of our friends. But we, we're still spending a lot of time down there. We're still traveling down there to do residency work. So we're still there staying with friends now instead of living in our own apartment. And that was actually, actually turned out to be a pretty good thing as far as seeing friends. You know, in some ways, we're seeing more of old friends that we had down there than we did when we lived there. <laughs> so it would, you know, when we'd come in off the road, we'd tend to be hiding out, you know, be hermits in our little apartment. And now we go down and we stay with them. And, you know, so it's a, it's a whole different thing. But no, we don't miss the city at all. In fact, getting up here, uh, living up here is just a wonderful thing. We just wonder why we waited so long because it's so beautiful here. It's just every window you look out of our house, it's just a gorgeous place to see and a gorgeous place to be. How hard did Sunny Oaks have to twist your arm to get you to move up there? Well, I guess she's been sort of twisting our arm gently for years, even after we bought our place back in the 90s. We've been paying it off little by little, hoping to get it perhaps paid off before we actually relocated up here, and she was just always encouraging us to move up here and deal with that later, you know. What happened was that the apartment we were living in, second floor of a commercial building there in Tacoma Park, Maryland, and our friend who owned the music store downstairs sold the whole building, and so we were faced with this dilemma of, do we go out and try and find a new apartment, which would undoubtedly cost us at least twice what we were paying in rent, 
or should we just move to the house? And we just said, well, let's move to the house, you know. So it was a great idea. You know, in the Quaker world, we have this phrase, way will open, but sometimes the way that you end up going forward into your new adventure is that you have the door shut behind you. Sounds like that's what you had. I guess you might say that. It was sort of a, at least one door that closed behind us, but there seemed to be another door that was slightly still ajar. <laughs> so we, or maybe we still have our foot in it or something. So we're actually able to go back. How much of your work, your music, is income-producing versus doing benefits? I have the sense, and the reason I have you here for Spirit in Action, is because so much of your music has a point to it, wants to bring about a positive change in the world. Do you do a lot of benefits, or are you just a low-paid folk singer all the time? <laughs> well, we are pretty much you know, low-paid folk singers all the time, and then we also do a lot of benefits. So it's sort of both. The number of benefits that we do, uh, I suppose, varies from year to year. But we're pretty much focused on making sure that everything that we do in our work has some socially redeeming purpose, and whether it's a benefit or whether it's a protest or whether it's educational. There's always something. But yeah, the benefits are certainly a large, a large part of what we do. We tend to try to focus our benefit energies on things that we feel strongly about so that we don't end up just doing benefit after benefit and diffusing and diminishing our own energy. So give me an idea of this past year, and we're, we're now launched into 2011. 2010, give me an overview of how much time you've spent touring, what kind of benefits or movements or protests or whatever you did in 2010. We spent a lot of time on the road. It's kind of difficult to pin it down. I guess you'd say that during the summer, we spend a lot of time traveling from gig to gig, folk festival to folk festival. During the school year, we spend a lot of time traveling from school to school. We do a fair amount of residency work down in Washington, D.C. area, so sometimes we'll be going down there and staying for weeks at a time doing residencies. Benefits, last year we probably did at least several. I'm not exactly clear, to be honest, how many. There was quite a few. Like where would you do a benefit or what kind of protest or whatever, those kind of settings, where would you have been? We do benefits for uh, various organizations that are working on whatever it is, their educational goals, trying to raise money for peace groups. We did some work last year with our friend Nadine and uh, trying to put together a kind of an arts-based uh, response to the ongoing war in Iraq. But at the same time, last year was a political year, so we did some work for political people that we support. Our educational work is probably what takes most of our energy as far as that goes. We do a lot of work in teaching history, cultural history, particularly cultural history relative to struggles of people to achieve peace and uh, justice. We uh, do a lot of work dealing with the history of liberation struggle in America in the 19th century, the Underground Railroad, story of the antebellum era, abolition movement. We do a lot of work in the inner city in Washington, D.C., doing teacher training, showing teachers how to use music effectively as a teaching tool. We've been doing that for 30 years. Is this all happening in public schools or private schools? I mean, do they let insurrectionists like you into public schools? <laughs> yes, they do. You know, obviously, um, when we're programmed, when we're booked to play in a school, they, you know, they're not booking us in as, an, as insurrectionists. <laughs> 
But yeah, you know, they, basically what we do is we teach a history from a specific perspective, but it is history. And as far as the other stuff is concerned, it's the, you know, it's really it's proactive work and aimed at improving teaching in general. You know, last year we did, and we're doing a little bit more this year. We do a lot of work for the Smithsonian Institution where we show teachers how to use music effectively to teach history. We've done specialty programs in history on the Underground Railroad, the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, World War One, And whenever we do those kinds of programs, we're taking it from the perspective of the people who are facing the struggle. Even World War One, for example, we did the whole this whole program on World War One, and we well, we did some of the songs that are commonly associated with World War One. But then we also went ahead and said, well, there were there were other perspectives on World War One, some of which came later. And then we do some of the anti-war stuff that was written in the years after World War One, and tie it in with one of the relatively popular songs of the war itself called uh, "I Didn't Raise My Boy to Be a Soldier," one of the first genuine, popular, Tin Pan Alley anti-war songs. You know, there's a, we always try to give that perspective in addition to teaching the history of, um, of the way that the people dealt with these historical events swirling around them as a way of as a way of enlightening both teachers and students about that old adage of if you don't know your history, you will be forever condemned to repeat it. And if you don't know about the mistakes in our past, we will be forever condemned to repeating the mistakes. And we feel that one of the best ways of perhaps changing the future of our planet in terms of conflagration and conflict is to point out where conflagration and conflict have been problems in the past and how did people deal with it. It sounds to me a little bit like you're bringing in some of like Howard Zinn's People's History. You talk about doing this in the area of Washington, D.C., where you live. Do you do it elsewhere? As I'm kind of trying to imagine you coming out to Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where I live, and doing it in the schools. I think it would be absolutely wonderful if that was set up, but are you mainly a Washington, D.C. institution? Uh, no. In fact, we do it on the road. We actually do these kinds of programs in schools all over the country. Um, obviously, we do them more in the eastern United States than we do in the Midwest or in the West, but that's mostly just a, an issue of connections and contacts. We have a lot of connections and contacts in the east and networks here, so we tend to do them in the east. But even Washington, D.C., it's not just Washington, D.C. itself, but the whole surrounding region, the whole mid-Atlantic region. We have actually have an agency in the Washington area that does a lot of the bookings for us down there. And then for the rest of the country, we pretty much do it on our own. So yeah, we you know we travel all over the place. The fact is, we're going out to Kansas in September to perform a lot of our work on the story of John Brown out there in September. So we do hit the road and go out and usually try to set up tours. So if uh, there are people in Wisconsin who would be interested in having us come to do historical programs, we would certainly encourage them to do that and contact us. You know, contact us through our website. And our website, of course, has descriptions of the school programs that we have prepared. There are others that we can prepare. There are musical clips and everything there. So, And that site is magpiemusic.com? Magpiemusic.com, yeah. And you are John Brown, right? I perform uh, as John Brown. I've been doing John Brown for 10 years now. Terry, of course, plays the role of Mary Brown, our play. 
Well, that's great stuff. Well, let's expose people to some of your music, and which is also, I think, integral to your music is this worldview and I think spiritual view that you bring to it. Let's start out with some music. What would you like to expose some people to? I think the best place to start is with the song that is kind of a personal manifesto for us, and it's a song called the Before the Morning Sun. This is Before the Morning Sun by Magpie. We have Greg Artsner of Magpie here with us today. I stand before the morning sun Dark night close behind Another day to live the hope No longer running blind I've seen the storm clouds coming I've felt the cold hard rain But when loving friends stand by me I can ride once again I can rise up once again I stand before the morning sun land bathed in new light sparkling rivers and high mountains on birds wings my soul takes flight I'll lend a hand to all I my relations beyond the human race beyond the human Others hand in hand Our journey now has just begun At the crossroads now we stand Turning 
Magpie, Before the Morning Sun. And Greg, that song, you referred to it as kind of your manifesto. What parts of it make it your manifesto? Why is that specifically emblematic of what you and Terry and Magpie are about? Well, I think it pretty much sets forth what we believe. It also sets forth, at least to a certain extent, what we don't believe. And it sets forth, I guess, what we believe is important about our work, what we do with what we do to achieve some of the things that we believe in. One of the lines I like best in there is where you refer to seeing all things as your relations, which, of course, I, I connect that with Native American expression of that. You know, They'd say, all my relations. Is that where you took it from? Do you have a certain amount of uh, exposure to Native American or First Nation process? Indeed. We, you know, Terry and I have both, we've sort of gone through a, a whole spiritual exploratory journey in the years that we've been together. In the early 90s, we had a number of experiences that were all rooted in that, what is called the Red Road. We basically were practitioners of the Lakota, Nakota, Dakota tradition of the pipe and the sweat lodge. We became pipe carriers, sweat lodge leaders, and even went out to South Dakota and participated in Ambalachia, or in the case of our friends who were the Dakotas who were taking us out there, the Ambalachia, the vision quest where we fasted, prayed on top of Bear Butte. The concept of all my relations, Mitako Yasin, is the, even today to me a very, it's a very poignant concept. The idea that we as living creatures are related to all the other living creatures on our planet. We share this planet with them, and we all are of the planet. And, of course, in the, the native tradition, it doesn't just mean what we commonly refer to as living things, but it also refers to things that aren't living in the sense that they you know, are living tissues that replicate. We are also related to the rocks and to the water and to the air. And I see that as a, a kind of a guiding principle for a lot of things that we do, the other things that we believe particularly in terms of the way we treat the planet, the way we treat our, our Earth. I guess a lot of your songs have what some people might call an environmental edge to them, or, uh, you know, it's, it's this bigger connection and we have to be concerned about the other beings, all our relations on the planet. Language that I've learned since, you know, Earth Day in 1970, people start referring to environmental. But I don't particularly like that. I like terms of care for creation because environmental is talking what's around us and that makes us centric to it. Whereas when we're talking about creation, we're part of it. And I think that's in common with the way you treat it. Yeah. I guess I have a similar kind of disdain for the term environment. I tend to think in terms of the planet, the earth, my woods, <laughs> the woods around me, my, the land around me, my, my, and all my relations. But yes, and in fact, it's true. There, there's a whole tremendous amount of energy that we focused on environment, the environment, environmental causes, 
for the entire journey of our career thus far. It kind of came to a head, I, I guess you might say, or uh, it came to fruition artistically in the late 80s when we uh, were coming up on the 20th anniversary of Earth Day, and we decided to put together a collection of songs dedicated to environmental themes, all songs about the Earth, and we looked around and we found that there really were no such records. Nobody in those days, in the late 80s, by the time the late 80s, no one had really done that. Uh, there were a precious few. Pete Seeger had recorded one back in uh, the early 70s, and that was about it. So we found that we were, in some ways, we were kind of on our own. And it was right around that same time that we began to explore the earth-based spiritual underpinnings of the Red Road and Sweat Lodge. And that really helped us as far as focusing our energies and making sure that what we, what we were singing about and was, well, was true, true in, in the big sense. Not just true to the facts and true to the science, but also true to the heart, true to us. And, in, and of course, ever since then, there's been a, a lot of our energy focused on the earth. We're usually very busy throughout the entire year, but particularly during the spring months when people are beginning to focus on Earth Day. And of course, these last several years, there's been such a growing emphasis on, finally, growing emphasis on these concerns with various different organizations going green. So we find ourselves going in there you know, and saying, yeah, it's about time. <laughs> yeah, it is about time. Well, how about we share some more music that's in this vein that expresses this kind of experience? You've, it sounds like you've had a wide variety of experiences. Is there something you could pick out that would be relevant? Yeah, well, of course, now we've got our major Earth anthem, the one that we wrote some years back on We Belong to the Earth. There's a song on our Seed on the Prairie album, which uh, we recorded back in 93, right at the height of this entire thing, uh, where we were really focusing on uh, Earth themes. And we had just returned from a trip to England and Scotland, one of our many tours over there. On one of our trips over there, we did, uh, I guess you'd sort of call it the megalithic tour. We went around, and in between the gigs we were doing, we went to visit all of the ancient sites, the ancient stone circles. This was a way for us of connecting our Earth consciousness that we had been working on and developing over here with uh, the Red Road and the pipe and honoring the Earth. It was a way of connecting that with the ancient Earth-based traditions over there. So visiting a couple of the ancient stone circles, we had some absolutely amazing and downright mystical experiences, which uh, we decided to recount in song and that song is a kind of an amalgamation of experiences that we had at Stone Circle up in the Lake District called Castle Rig and an experience that we had a close encounter that I had with our namesake a wild magpie when we were visiting a Stone Circle at Avebury in the south of England that song is a pretty good place to start the song is Circle of Stone by Magpie
with us here today for Spirit in Action, Greg Artsner. He is one of the two members of Magpie. And as you heard in that song, Circle of Stone, there is the reference to the Magpie. I assume you had the name Magpie before you actually had that encounter with the Magpie. Why did you pick the name? The way that we actually got the name was a rather silly thing. It's almost not even worth saying how we got it, but uh, it just happened one evening. We were having a practice session with our banjo player playing with us at the time. This was back in 1970, late fall 1973. But what happened, of course, was that, you know, once you once you choose a name like that, a lot of times, uh, if you're open to it, things sort of descend upon you, you know. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy to have a name like that. So we became Magpie. We became the Magpies. The old children's nursery rhyme that's been turned into songs about magpies, this is old rhyme, this is one's for sorrow and two's for joy, and three's for a girl and four's for a boy. Well, you know, we're the, we're the two. Two's for joy, so that's us. And then there were all these other things that happened and um, lots of different experiences relative to magpies that became part of our history. I guess our duo psyche, in a sense. When we were in England, one of the things that occurred there was sort of poetically described in the song. When we were at Avebury, we had just pulled into the parking lot of the stone circle there early in the morning. We were second or third car into the parking lot. Just as we pulled in, we saw there was a woman standing there throwing little bits of bread to this magpie, and it was getting very close to her, closer than we had ever seen a wild magpie get to a human being. They tend to be very skittish birds like other birds are, you know. But she was getting really close. It was getting really close to her. So we jumped out of the car, and we ran over there, and was getting all set to take pictures, and... She handed us the bread. She was going to go on and hang, you know, hang out with her husband there and leave us there to feed the magpie. So Terry fed the magpie, and it was getting really, really close to her. And then she took the camera, handed the bread off to me, and I was getting pretty low. I was down to the last couple of bits of bread, and, and the bird was getting really, really close to me. He flew over and landed on the top of a car. So I walked over around to the rear end of the car, and I just stood there with the last piece of bread. And I held that bread. I was determined that this magpie was going to eat out of my hand. And sure enough, the magpie hopped down onto the trunk of the car and came over and took that little piece of bread right out of my hand. But it didn't swallow the bread, didn't eat the bread. What it did instead was it came over, and I had a fanny pack on, and it came over and it took that little piece of bread and it pushed it up under the flap over the zipper on the front of my fanny pack. And it were a good place where the bread could get wedged in there under the flap and it let the flap fall back down and then it pounded on it just to make sure that that bread was tucked in there good and tight and I was just completely awestruck just thumbstruck really and the bird, the bird jumped back up onto the roof of the car and then I walked away a few feet but it wasn't finished, it flew down off of the car hopped over to me on the ground and picked up a little pebble off of the ground and then it hopped over and took that pebble and tucked it under the lacing flap at the bottom of my Converse All-Stars. 
and then it pounded on the stone to make sure that it was in place, and then hopped right up on my foot. And then after that, it was gone. Moments later, we were uh, getting ready to go into this stone circle, and I was just absolutely freaking out. You know, this had happened, you know. So I went to uh, have a look. I pulled the bread out, you know, and had a, had a look. Sure enough, the little zipper compartment on the front of the fanny pack was hanging open, and it was empty. And that's where I've been keeping the rental car keys. I said, oh, no, what's going on here? What happened to the rental car keys? Did I drop them on the ground, you know, or what? We went back to the car, and sure enough, in my haste to get out of the car, I had left the keys hanging in the door lock with all of our instruments in the trunk and all of our bags on the back seat. And it would have been a disaster if the magpie had not reminded me. <laughs> and, I, and I hadn't gone to look and see if that compartment was open. We would have lost everything. Good friends to have. Oh, yeah. The so-called thieving magpie was a bird that, in this case, absolutely averted the possible theft. But ever since that day, I've honored the magpie, you know. And at one time, we had an experience not too long after that. We were having a special, very special sweat with a fellow who taught, the guy who taught me, a Lakota fellow who taught the guy who taught me the sweat lodge. And he was giving us a little bit of a lesson about going on vision quest. And he said, you know... If you're on a vision quest and you look up in the sky and you see an eagle soaring overhead, you know, you shouldn't really think too much of that because that could happen anytime. Or if you see a hawk soaring overhead, he's probably just looking for something to eat. But if, on the other hand, that hawk flies down and hops into your altar space and then hops right up on you, then that's your medicine. <laughs> so I figured, well, after that, the magpie is definitely my medicine. Great stories, yeah, and great connections with our relations there. Your website is magpiemusic.com. People should check out there if they want to get a hold of the various programs that you can do or find your music, all that kind of thing. You're not a single-issue type person. It's not just uh, environmental-related things that you do. You mentioned peace earlier. Talk about the wider universe of values that you do music about. Well, uh, yeah, our entire musical career, and, and even before we got together, both Terry and I uh, individually have been involved in using music as a tool to make this a better world. I can say that for me personally, this dates back to the 60s, 50s and 60s, musically. When I was growing up, we experienced the great topical music of the 1960s and the music of the civil rights movement, the music of the movement to end the war in Vietnam. That period of time and that music, of course, had a profound influence on me. I never, my entire life, I've never thought of music as just being, for me anyway, just being an entertainment. I'm happy to be entertaining, even using music that has a topical theme, political theme, social theme. We want to still be entertaining, you know. But I've never thought of it as just being entertainment. I've always felt that music has had a, had a greater purpose. And I wanted to be there. You know, I wanted to be in that number. So, yeah, our entire career has been dedicated to social issues, uh, issues of social justice, issues of stopping war, ending war, freedom, equality, all of these things. Of course, we feel that the Earth is one of those issues that is intricately connected with all that. Our experiences working for peace as musicians dating back to the 60s. I'm one of my very first gigs in front of people. 
In fact, my very first gig singing in front of an audience, in front of a live audience, was when I was 11 years old, and I sang uh, at a civil rights conference in my hometown of Canton, Ohio. When I was in high school and the war in Vietnam was raging, I went and sang at the local demonstrations against the war and the October 1969 moratorium against the war. Terry and I together have sung at demonstrations against all the wars over the years when we lived in Washington, D.C. It was rather, you could say, a rather convenient location for doing that kind of work. You know, you'd throw your guitar in a gig bag and hop on the train and be right down on the wall. Uh, so I don't even know how many dozens of demonstrations we've performed at in D.C. All of it tied into the influences of uh, our heroes and sheroes, those who have paved the way for us and did this kind of work. Pete Seeger, is, uh, who is now a friend of ours, I have to pinch myself whenever I say that, but because when I was a kid, you know, Pete was just, he was the daddy of them all, and still is. You know, he's just been a tremendous influence on me politically and musically all the years, and now continues to be. And then in the 60s, it was people like Phil Oakes, Joan Baez, Malvina Reynolds, Gene Ritchie, Tom Paxton, Eric Anderson, particularly people like Phil Oakes, who had a tremendous impact on me as a songwriter and as a person who dedicated himself to whatever cause it was. In the early 60s, he was really focused on the civil rights movement, which, of course, was a major thing to me because my father worked for the Urban League as a job person, job development person, and uh, my entire family got involved in the civil rights movement in our small way, in our small town of Canton, Ohio. And then in the uh, late 60s, when uh, it was the war, you know, Phil was a, continued to be a, a national inspiration to those of us who uh, were engaged in that struggle. And then, of course, came Kent. And Kent stayed in uh, May of 1970. My partner, Terry, was in the famous demonstration on campus on May 4th in the line of fire with all those other hundreds of students. You know, for me, I, I keep thinking, you know, there but for fortune that my partner, Terry, is my partner, Terry, and that she didn't end up like Allison Krauss. Whenever I see Terry, I just say, I'm, I'm just a fortunate person that I have somebody who was, who was spared that day, but who has ever since been a dedicated progressive and an activist for trying to leave this world a better place than we found it. Well, let's share your song, There But For Fortune. Of course, it's originally by Phil Oakes, here performed by Magpie. Show me a prison Show me a jail Show me a prisoner young man with many reasons why there but for fortune may go you or I show me an alley show me a train show me a hobo Man. 
version of There But For Fortune. You can find it via their website, magpiemusic.com. A lot more information about them. This is Spirit in Action, and my guest today is Greg Artsner. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and our website is northernspiritradio.org. You can go to the site and find our programs from the last five and a half years, archive there, and connections to people like Greg and Terry of Magpie. So, Greg, you've got such a wealth of music. How many collections out there, CDs, LPs, all of that, do you have that either are your own or compilations with other people? I am not sure. <laughs> I think we've got about 11 CDs on our own. We did two albums with Kim and Reggie Harris, and we're on several notable collections. Smithsonian's monumental collection, American Folk Song, a 20th Century Revival. We are on all three of the collections of the songs of Pete Seeger, one of which, uh, Seeds, the most recent one, was nominated for a Grammy here a couple of years ago. We are also on Singing Through the Hard Times, which is the uh, tribute to Utah Phillips, which came out the year before last, and it was, uh, it was nominated for a Grammy Award. And we're on uh, Phil Oaks' collection, songs performed by various artists uh, called uh, What's That I Hear. There's an organization 
that was centered out in Montana, organized by the late uh, walking Jim Stoltz, a very dear friend of ours, called Musicians United to Sustain the Environment, and they did three or four different collections and were on all of them, and one of them was one that we put together called Songs for the Earth, which was a, a tribute to Rachel Carson. We're on a few different collections of civil rights songs that were produced by an organization called the Cultural Center for Social Change. A couple of these collections are where we're actually singing with members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee's Freedom Singers, Matthew Jones and Marshall Jones, Wazir Peacock, Emery Harris. Those were a tremendous honor for us to share the stage with those guys who are just, they're the original guys. They're the civil rights singers who were out there in the trenches, out there on the front lines of the civil rights movement. You know, for us to share the stage with those gentlemen was a tremendous honor. So yeah, we're on a lot of those different things. And so there's lots of recordings. More to come. <laughs> People can find them all via magpiemusic.com. I'm sure you're up on iTunes, everywhere else. By the way, I was just this morning speaking with Leslie Stoltz, that is to say, Walking Jim Stoltz's wife. I mean, he passed away this last fall, but I'm arranging a collection of his music as part of Spirit and Action, Song of the Soul, and that'll be upcoming in the next couple of weeks. That's wonderful. What an interesting, wonderful man he was. He, 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 when you hear Jim talk, his speaking voice sounded almost nothing like his, his singing voice. You'd hear him talk, and uh, you know he sounded like a regular guy, and then he'd start singing, and that amazing baritone would come out of him. What an unusual voice. And boy, I'll tell you, I don't think there was ever a more eloquent voice in defense of our Mother Earth than walking Jim Stoltz. And he did it with such beauty and grace. You know, never any bitterness or cynicism. It was always just the best. And he wrote some amazing songs, a couple of which Terry and I have in our repertoire that we just love. And boy, Jim is going to be sorely missed. Yes, he will be. So you'll be able to hear some of his music on both Spirit and Action and Song of the Soul shortly. But let's hear some more of your music now. We've got Magpie. There's so much good music you've produced and all of your recordings and in your collaborations. What would you like to do next? Let's go back to that peace struggle. We've got a song that we've been singing for a number of years. It's a way of paying tribute to our good friend, and I guess you'd call him a mentor. In a lot of ways, he is a mentor to us. Is Pete Seeger. Pete has been singing for... For peace, for justice, for the earth, his entire 90-some-odd years here now. I think he's 92 now, I think, or something. But he's still going strong. Back in the 60s, Pete wrote this song. He had become very poignantly aware of the power of women in the peace movement, not just during the 60s, but dating back to the early part of the 20th century and the women's strike for peace. His thesis, I suppose, in this song was to a certain extent that worldwide women really needed to lead the charge. They needed to lead our world to a peaceful place and that the men needed to listen. As was rather typical of Pete, he sometimes would put his songs into the context of a biblical theme. So Eve becomes the archetype, I suppose you might say, of women struggling for peace. So his song is an open letter to her. It's called Letter to Eve.
Mrs. Adam, now you're kicked out of the garden. Oh, Eve, where is Adam? Now you're kicked out of the garden. Been wandering from shore to shore. Now you find that there's no more. Oh, oh in Terrace. Here, Shanti Salam Ewa. Don't you wish love, only love, could save this world from disaster? Oh, love, only love, could save this world from disaster. Don't you wish love could end the confusion? Or is it just one more illusion? If you want to have great love, you've got to have great anger. If you want to have great love, you've got to have great anger. When I see innocent folks shot down, you want me to just shake my head and frown. Oh, oh, watch him in terrace, near Shanti Salamhewa. Now if you want to hit the target square, you'd better not have blind anger. If you want to hit the target square, you'd better not have blind anger. Another crime. Oh, oh, ah, Jimmy Terrace, Mir Shanti Salam Ewa. If music could only bring peace, I'd only be a musician. If songs could do more than all the pain, if melodies could only break these chains. Oh, Hajim Inters, Mir Shanti Salam Hewa. To build a new garden. Oh, we've got to let them. We've got to build a new garden. We've got to get working on a building, a decent home for all of our children. Oh, Hajim in Terrace, Mir Shanti Salam Hewa. Time he asks you. Oh, if you 
To come inside, you say, Oh, Pa Jim in Terrace, Mir Shanti Salam Hewa. Oh, Pa Jim in Terrace, Mir Shanti Salam Hewa. Oh, Pa Jim in Terrace, Mir Shanti Salam Hewa. Same thing to every boy and girl. Oh, pa jamin terrace, mir shanti salam hewa. Oh, pa jamin terrace, mir shanti salam hewa. Letter to Eve, written by Pete Seeger, performed here by Magpie from their Living Planet album. Find it via magpiemusic.com. I love that jazzy, bluesy type of music and look forward to more musical riches next week as we continue our Spirit in Action interview with Greg Artsner of Magpie. See you all next week. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with 